0: Welcome to the last in the series of ambidexterity lead and disrupt exploit and explore, and indeed the corporate explorer. Today's episode is the ambidextrous leader. We're going to talk to a leader that managed to create massive value by leading the organisation, exploring the future while exploiting the present. Before we start, the innovation show is proudly brought to you by gate one consulting with offices here in Dublin in London and in New York, and the gate one incubator, where gate one supports its team to become founder investments in a growing portfolio of startups. You can find gate one at gate In chapter five of Tushman and O'Reilly's lead and disrupt the authors share how Cypress Semiconductor used a venture funding model complete with a one page business plan to drive multi million dollar growth from within the organization. Cyprus called this approach a federation of entrepreneurs. And it is a great case study in ambidextrous leadership with a leader who both explored the future while exploiting the present. Well, it seems to have worked because in June 2019, Infineon Technologies announced it would acquire Cyprus for $9.4 billion. This deal closed in April 2020, making Infineon one of the world's top 10 semiconductor manufacturers. We are joined today by that very ambidextrous leader, the former CEO of Cypress, TJ Rogers, and his friend and author of lead and disrupt Charles O'Reilly, III. Gentlemen, you're very welcome.
1: Thank you. Federation of entrepreneurs, I I haven't heard that phrase in years when Cypress was like 15 years old, I was there as CEO for 34 years from inception really to acquisition. I realized that, that hardening of the arteries was a corporate thing as well. And I guess if you look at, you know, say IBM today and read Gerstner's book on IBM, they've got, man, <laughs> cement arteries in that company. And I saw that early. And in Silicon Valley, it takes the form of not acting like a startup. When you got a startup, you're near the edge of death all the time. You have to raise money. If the new product doesn't come out, you're dead. Every, and, a, and a good CEO will let all of his people know that you don't protect your people. You 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 make them part of the play. And then they all act that way. <clears throat> and what, what happened was we grew up, you know, we eventually peaked at 7,500 employees, but when we hit, 1,000, 1,500 employees scattered all over the world. <laughs> I was losing that entrepreneurial edge. So the Federation of Entrepreneurs was, let's keep alive the, the uh, startup spirit at Cyprus by creating or acquiring startups. So in a couple cases, we hired people with great ideas and built them up. They walk into a building. They had to pay rent. It was real. The money was real. It's always always real p ls but they had a head start, uh, they had an HR department that they could help them with forms that so they had a big head start, uh, or acquire them and, and bring them in and integrate them do this do the same thing. And I, I did that and it had one giant success. It was like it, it was exactly like venture if you read, uh, uh, I forget the name of the book, but it's uh, the the latest venture book, which talks about how you make all your money in just a few companies. And, and that's, that's the way it works. So our giant success was, uh, Sunpar. Um, so we, uh, I went to school with the guy, his office was across the hallway from mine at Stanford. Brilliant. One of the five smartest people I've ever met started the company and they made solar cells. And their deal was he studied the physics of a solar cell and made a solar cell in 1999 that was as good or better as anything on the earth today and 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 and, by, and at the time he made it it was 50% better 20% efficiency versus 14% on average for what was out there and yet he was going bankrupt because his phd super smart guy uh hired a bunch of expensive technicians out of stanford so he's paying inordinate manufacturing costs didn't have a clue about quality that that that's almost true for almost all of silicon valley until the companies get older and either survive or get killed because they don't have quality That'll be a chapter in the new book. <clears throat> um, I met him, coffee shop. Hi, uh, how are things going? Not so good. Why? Well, I'm going to have to have a big layoff. Half the company just before Christmas. How come? Well, all our government business is gone. They've been paid uh, $200 a watt for their solar cells. Today's uh, solar cells for 40 cents a watt. Just give you. And and so they, they were making a lot of money and wasting a lot of money, and they didn't know that the, what the apparent profit was uh, illusory. Uh, so I went to my board and said, the solar thing's going to be a big deal. This this is uh, 2000. It was 2001 when, when this happened. And we were in a crash. No, you can't do it. You know, you got to focus on your primary business. You know, somebody just read some article in the Harvard Business Review, whatever. And uh, so they wouldn't let me do it. Uh, I couldn't, so I went and wrote a check for seven hundred fifty thousand bucks. Save SunPower, and and it took me over a year to get the board to agree to acquire SunPower. <laughs> I had a deal done to acquire them for two million bucks. We ended up paying fifty-seven million dollars for them, and we ended up divesting them at a valuation of uh, well over well over a billion dollars when we finally spun them uh, out to our shareholders uh, when they demanded to do it. <laughs> So that was a Federation of Entrepreneurs, um, the idea to, to get new divisions in the company and new products that act like you used to act and not like you do now. And then, of course, you can always point out to the old guys, you look at what you're missing here, look what you're missing there. Uh, today, my Federation of Entrepreneurs is my venture firm. <clears throat> the difference is I've come to realize how important, how valuable manufacturing, uh, management is. Um, for example, my first job after I left Cyprus was a favor. Uh, John Doerr, the chairman of Kleiner Perkins, who was on my board for 10 years and is a good friend of mine, uh, I came in and invested $5 million to keep him from going broke. John Doerr co-invested $5 million. Their stock was at 92 cents. We got 5.3 million shares of stock each. And then I started to work. And in the beginning, it's a high duty cycle. I was driving up there every week. And it was kind of like a a balky division in a company. Today, their stock has crashed, just yesterday crashed. Their stock is $166, up from 92 cents. Okay, so you take, you take well, five million, five, five million shares times $200 a share is a billion dollars. So all of a sudden I realized, you know, I was really getting underpaid because their problem is not that hard. They make a goddamn box, right? It's got 300 components in it and it's got a spec and it's got to be reliable and it's got to be cheap. Okay, so you have to have automatic manufacturing to make it cheap. You have to have good reliability, scientists who understand what's, what's going on. And again, they're buying components from real companies. So, so they get reliable stuff to start out with. They say add unreliability by doing improper design. And it was a billion dollars. So TJ, can I get you to go back just for a second to the Federation of Entrepreneurs, I, I thought it was brilliant. This notion of setting up
0: a, uh,
1: having a one page term sheet. Setting up a uh, a board that would review the the technical uh, merits of whatever the proposal was, having them operate separately. And I know I know you you had I think uh, uh, fourteen separate uh, at different times. You had fourteen separate. Could you talk a little bit about that process and and what worked and what didn't work and what advice you might give uh, other people who are going to try to do something similar? Sure. So I already articulated the fact that when they walked into an organization that had resources, the person might say, Well, I want to make an offer. And I don't know how much I say, go to HR, they have a process for it. And you can find out exactly where the market is. And they'll give you a letter that's bulletproof. So uh, one, the bureaucratic things go off the table, meaning they get to work on real stuff. Downside of that is they don't mature um, as fast as they could because they don't have to work with a negotiator who's going to hold you up uh, and you have to stand against that person because you can't undermine other people in the company with an unfair offer. Uh, they don't deal. Of course, I, I didn't deal with that during my career. They don't deal with the, the trigger warning set. Where where you've got people that think because they're employees of the company, they get to s- decide the strategy of the company. No, you don't. You get to design print circuit boards that meet our charter, uh, that, in, 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 that meet our, our, our goals in the marketplace. That's what we hired you for. That's our that's our contract. So they, they they lost a little bit of the real world stuff in their in their good environment. But the main loss, believe it or not, that I've now learned is funding. Um, I watched the venture process, and I thought it was horribly inefficient. I would watch companies go for a year, starving for money, making pitches, uh, changing their strategy, uh, adding a new product, whatever they had to do to raise money to stay alive. And I thought, if I could just fund that, which they did, Cypress had a lot of money. We had, uh, you know, after we got going, we were cash flow positive for the second half of our career, and <clears throat> we put billions back into the market, buying back our stock, paying out dividends and stuff like that. I had plenty plenty of money to fund things. And uh, the, I worked out a deal with them where they gave me a business plan. We had metrics for valuation, <clears throat> So you'd look at PE ratio, price to sales, enterprise on sales ratios. You look at ratios, you look at the market and you'd have a valuation for the company that you could determine versus time. That came from the plan, and then that was then that divided by the number of shares they had outstanding. Their problem: how many people do you need? How many shares do you have to issue? How many times do you have to redo the same product and buy and, and sell more shares to redo the same product? Dilution: the number of shares which they controlled would divide into the valuation that we agreed on previously, and that was the share price. And then, um, I started out just saying, if you're on plan, you'll get funding, meaning they'd come to my office. They'd show me their plan. They'd show me how they're on plan and they say, and we do it quarterly. So they get reminded quarterly what they needed, what they were doing. You know, so this quarter I need $1.2 million to fund the company and I'd agree. They, they cut the check and they'd move on. Turns out that was too easy. And it turns out in the real world, as I watch the venture guys work, uh, you can see, I wouldn't call it the method in their madness. I would call it the uh, the brilliance of the free market, <laughs> where you have a bunch of people with money on Sand Hill Road. They're trying to figure out what the next Google is, and then they're talking to people, and they've got this incredibly complex, complex to the point of unknowable problem about will this this group of people turn into a real company that's worth a lot of money or not? And sometimes it unfairly happens that. Good guys get starved. Sometimes it unfairly happens that not good guys get funded. Look at—I've um, forgotten his name—but the idiot who bought the sixty-five million-dollar jet at WeWork, Adam Newman. Adam Newman. Okay, so there. So we have mistakes on both sides. Um, but that process, every now and then, the venture cap, the entrepreneur is bumping up against the grim reaper. We're looking looking in the rear view and there's a grim reaper behind him swinging the scythe right and they, they've got to think about it they go back and talk about it their employees know that 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 there's a problem there could be a problem <clears throat> that dynamic was gone I was a tough blunt safe harbor and uh, there are no safe harbors in the real world <clears throat> so uh, that I like better on the new side where I, where I am now It also forces changes that never would happen uh, in a safe harbor where the company comes in and says, we're not going to be able to get this done.
0: I love that it's worked. And I love that you have the freedom. Now you have the, you're independently wealthy that you can make these these decisions, but you have a formula that worked and that formula started to work when you were in Cyprus looking forward. And this ties to the work of Charles and Michael is the idea of you were able to exploit your present advantage your your current advantage while exploring the future in tandem which is a really really rare skill and that that's a piece that i really wanted to share with our audience because if we can give that to some other ceos and the fact that you were a founder means that you weren't just a, a custodian of the role like many ceos are custodians of the role but you were You cared about the future, and I'd love to share that perspective with our audience. Sure. How do you run the ship and
1: then do new stuff at the same time, Uh, and and how does one person do that? That's a very good question, and it, it does differentiate successful and unsuccessful CEOs as I see them today. All right. So, you, first of all, I'm the CEO of the company. The shareholders owned it. If you read my resume I sent them, I'm really hot shit and I'm going to make them a lot of money and we got a great business plan. Okay, you've made your promise. Now you either keep your word or you don't keep your word. You either keep your word or you die trying back to the uh, on the shield part of it. So you go into Cyprus uh, on day one and you've got engineers you've worked with. You pick the best of the best. the fickleness of the world, I had this big list from Advanced Micro Devices, which is the last company I worked at before I did Cypress. And the old entrepreneur running AMD, Jerry Sanders, sued my ass right, right, exactly at the beginning because he knew I had the list. He he didn't, nobody told him I had the list, but he did it himself. He went and raped Fairchild. He came out of Fairchild, right? So that's that, <laughs> that's that that's what he was looking for. So he sues me. And the suit, I I, I think it was a patent suit, but bottom line was through through the whisper channel was, you leave his people alone and he'll leave you alone. So I I agreed to no no hiring agreement. So I ended up having to hire people from other companies. And what's really interesting is, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I hired 10 people out of Intel. That's where I started learning about Andy Grove. That's where I got my 10 connection lines. Andy Grove did this, the story about him walking down the hallway. And hearing some manager berate, berate his team. Uh, a, a, a Micron, what's now Micron at that time was Inmos. I, I got people out of that. Uh, they're great technologists, national semiconductor, good manufacturing people. AMD, when I finally got into them, great sales and marketing people. Okay. So you're hiring guy to begin with. I spent every week on the road. So hiring that many good people is a big deal. And I learned about it. That's actually in, in the first book. Uh, I'd send out a boarding party of six or eight people. We'd have a head in the city that arranged people who wanted to talk to this new hot semiconductor company. Uh, they would be put in rooms uh, by the head people and my team would interview them. We had a spec. Business processes was important to me forever if you want to fast forward if you have business processes at work you don't need to keep running things you don't need to keep making the same good decision over and over so we had a business process for how to interview a matrix for how many people needed to interview a process that turned turned out we asked for unanimous hire recommendation and we allowed for a a descent period where one manager would say i don't think we ought to hire that guy because of blah blah and then they could argue with each other and, and that often resolved back to, so a near major, a near unanimous majority. Okay. That's what I, and, and then I'd fly in on Thursday and I would personally give the offer and close it. So these, these people, wham, this, this guy's real. He's the CEO. Here's the money. He now talks about stock. Okay. Money will keep you going, but stock is where you're going to get, make a lot of money. Uh, and the visionary statement about where the company's going. So I did that for the first year, first, first 200, 200 people built, built a company. All right. Then you got to build a fab. Now I built stuff in my life. But at that time, I had never built a, a, a an industrial plant. So I go find the right guys at Mostak, Carrollton, Texas. They have the world's best fabs at that time. So I go get the His name is Jeff Hannon. Jeff brings his wife up from Dallas. She explains to me when she gets out of the car. So Jeff Hannon's wife explains to me you know, what's wrong with California and why Texas is better. Kind of like what you hear about today, <laughs> except I believe it more uh, than I did at that time. So, so uh, Mrs. Hannon gets out of the car and I had a real estate lady, my favorite real estate lady, who took care of all of her business, take her around to all the houses, and I knew it was going bad when she came home at four o'clock and she had two black lines on her face from the mascara that had run because she'd been crying all day long at how crappy and expensive the houses were in California. Next to her, you know, 4,000 square foot air conditioned, you know, a uh, house, house in Dallas. So then I went into overdrive and I eventually managed to get Hannon and he stayed. She was nagging the hell out of him. I stayed, he stayed for a year and a half, built a fab, and then went, went back to Texas. So, I built a fab. Uh, I had to buy equipment. I had to learn about the efficiency of capital. And you can talk, you know, in, in kind of macroeconomic terms about the efficiency of capital and labor. But when an engineer who doesn't care about that walks in and says, Well, we got to build a fab. And he lays down a bill for $120 million. And you go, Can we build a fab for less than $120 million? You start there. And then you go over it, and then you start working on the problem, and you work on piece of equipment by piece of equipment. Then you realize the process. By the way, I just went through this and still going through it with an Ox oh, battery company, same exact problem. Then you look, uh, and the old president didn't get it about capital and wouldn't get it, and explained to me how I didn't really understand, and my data was kind of dated and stuff like that. Okay, bye bye. New president. Now, now, now we work on capital efficiency. So you learn about that. You create a system for it. Then you build a fab and it, and it goes online and it doesn't work right. And it takes a year to get it to work. Okay, a year is infinite. You know, you're burning $2 million a month and it takes a year. Okay, well, then all of a sudden you stand, understand uh, the execution time, uh, time to market, things like that. So you work on that. So we created a spec at Cypress. It was called EPR-PCR, Equipment Procurement Review Process Control Review. What the hell is that? Well, the answer is if you printed out the spec on paper, it would be six feet tall. And it is the one million things you have to do to make a fab, buy it and put it online and make it work, which we in the semiconductor industry were first to learn because we had a thing called Moore's Law. One one good thing about semis that makes semiconductor executives my favorite to hire is we live in an environment where everything you did got obsoleted every two and a half years. And then you had to start over again. And there, and each race was fresh and, and it was real. You know, when I, when I started Cyprus, there were 85 semiconductor companies in the United States. I kept this record. And when I left Cyprus uh, 34 years later, there are only 15 of them alive. So this little process does grind you down and you have to understand it. So I transferred that process. To this company, I actually used it on SunPower to make an automatic fab for solar cells, and then I transferred the pr- process to this company. They refused to use it, and but but they they weren't honest. They they said they were using it. If you went to meetings, that looked like they were using it. If you looked at their output, kind of IBM style. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the Lou Gerstner story, where he was given being given a presentation by the IBM 390 group. And he went in and he said, the IBMers had this weird thing, they called them foils, transparencies, and they put on a projector. And all the meetings were to show one foil after another. And he said, after I figured that out, he said, it it prevented us from talking about real things. So in the meeting, uh, oh, by the way, I showed up at the plant at eight o'clock in the morning and nobody was there. (laughs) So I had to knock on the door to get in. Really? Okay, that's how you think about your new chairman. You got to think about why the old chairman's not there anymore and whether or not this is a wise thing for you to do, Mr. Plant Manager. He said, I went in and I put my finger on the switch and I shut off the foil projector. And I said, let's talk about your business. So you uh, you you have you have uh, moments like that where where the, the process gets in your way. All right. What did I do next? Oh, we had to make a product. Then I realized customers, I didn't know much about customers, and frankly, I was pretty customer hostile. So I had had to win some big customers and make a product. (laughs) I knew it had to be reliable, but I had a shit quality mentality like almost all American CEOs do. I have to go through the quality wars. Uh, Ours are 99.8% efficient. The Japanese are 99.98% good. Their defect rate is 200 ppm. And all you have to do is take, uh, like Cisco did, 128 rams and put them on a board and and ask yourself, what's the difference between uh, 99.8% yield and 99.98% yield on 128 rams? That is, how many of your boards don't work because one of the rams doesn't work? The answer was 3% for the Japanese rams and 30% for Cypress rams. We were out of Cisco, gone, never got back, disaster. So then I go, boy, you better learn about quality pretty fast or you're in trouble. So I got a PhD, the, the, only, to, the only time I ever saw a normal distribution is that same distribution is used to describe the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Okay, well, that didn't apply where I was. So I, I hired some really good consultants and, and they taught our company about quality. I got an equality kick. I gave the quality lecture, all hands meeting, special meeting, not at the normal time. We have to change or we won't be around. Here's what quality means. I gave that lecture in 1986. Um, I still give it today to my startups. I give the same slides. and I tell the same story I'm telling you. Okay. So you learn about quality and you hire a great quality guy. Most quality guys, most quality guys are engineers who didn't make it in engineering, so they turned into quality guys. The, 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 the HR and, and quality in the companies I've seen are not populated by stars. The stars go work on new products and business and manufacturing. <clears throat> so I learned that. All right, fast forward. Each time I learned something, I created a business process, and I hired a star to run it. And the star actually taught me. Uh, a lot. So the quality guy I hired, uh, his name is Sabas Daniel. I hired him when VLSI went belly up. That's one of the Grim Reaper, that's one that the Grim Reaper did get. And he's an MSEE out of MIT. And he came in. And all of a sudden, I understand what happens when you have a star in quality. So he ran quality. I backed him for everything he needed. Uh, and, 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 but I didn't have, to, I did put my time in quality, but I got to expand. I'll, I'll come back to that later. All right. So at the end, what was I running for the last decade? I spent a third of my time on quality, meaning me personally in quality meetings. And the one invention I brought to the party, I created a function called the Ombudsman. And the Ombudsman was uh, a quality based sales force that went out. And they took one trip a quarter, Asia, North America, Europe, South America. And they would, and they'd be on the road for 10 weeks and they'd visit all of our customers. And the pitch was, hi, we're from Cyprus. Um, we're glad you're here. I'm, I'm glad you guys could, could populate this meeting with the people we need. Tell us about what you think about our company. You don't have any pitch, you know, new product. No, we're here to find out what you think about us so we can improve our company. And then, you know, a little little skepticism about, can this be real? This is too good to be true. <laughs> they go out and then then they gather, they had the data gathering methods and pre-meetings that could make the main meeting more effective. And then we had the big meeting every quarter. And that meeting was an all day long meeting. And every vice president in the company was required to attend. And that doesn't mean Zoom. It doesn't mean, gee, I, I had a trip I planned. I had a vacation. You went to the quality meeting or you, you were in deep shit. It's that simple.
0: And that was an all-day-long
1: meeting where we got to look in the mirror and see how ugly we really were. I learned about net promoter score during that process, and we started out, calculated our first net promoter score. We had an NPS of 20, and then we worked on the 1,000 problems that made us less attracted to our customers than we would have liked. And when I left, our NPS was in the low 70s. We're up in Apple territory. They liked us. Very powerful. So one third of my time at the end on quality. Um, half my time on management, but this is a management like I do today. I'm on your board, the Federation of Entrepreneurs kind of management. I will review what you do and criticize it if I think it can be improved, but I'm not going to run your company for you. Because if I have to run your company for you, then, then you're gone. And then I'll replace myself because I'm 74 at f- five now. And I, I don't need to run a company. I'd been there, done that. So I, I, I got into the half my time in the Federation of Entrepreneurs mode. That means I could create a superset financial package. So I had I had the best financial dashboard I've ever seen in any company anywhere. And that now, that now resides in little chunks in the companies to the extent I can install it. The best is Enphase uh, that, that has what I had with adders in an R and D. I'd have a couple projects where my sanity day was Thursday that I could work on technology. So that was it. Well, how'd you run the company? Simple. I divisionalized it. So I had 13 business units. They were organized into three divisions. They had their own financial organization. They had their own cost structure. Um, my co- normally the president has this big cost bucket, so I deliberately got rid of all my costs. My my cost center was T.J. Rogers, the secretary, and my NASDAQ dues, and that was it. And it was allocated by revenue, and nobody argued because it was a small number. Because you know, on the grand scheme, so these guys were in effect presidents of independent companies that were truly a federation of entrepreneurs. Um, in I guess it was like 2015, we had a banquet. And 55 of them eventually went on to run other companies. And right now, a lot of them are have good jobs in the companies we do. But but because I hired stars, and I didn't want to run their job, I wanted them to run their job, right. And then I would come in and work on uh, problems and in the, the next next generation of things. I was always working on new stuff, always. And uh, my my job every time I had a job would be to solve a problem and put it autopilot's a negative term but put it on autopilot.
0: I had one thing that that intrigued me. I, I reading about you, the book, and and I read your website, and there, I want to tell our audience there, TJRogers.com, dot com. There's loads and loads of material on on there, including ways he's done things. There's there's articles from many many magazines that he's featured in over the years. But the thing that struck me was, you reminded me so much of Ray Dalio, the Bridgewater CEO, and this idea of radical transparency to avoid politics and bureaucracy in the organisation. Because that's one of the biggest killers of innovation, being free to talk up and put your hand up and raise a half baked idea or suggest something's wrong, or some strategy's a waste of time or waste of money. You absolutely distilled that idea throughout the organization that we you speak up you talk freely you slam an idea early so we don't waste time on it and i thought i'd love you to share that how do you do that in a kind of a a democratic way in an organization
1: okay um first a little bit of history on it uh you know I'll, i'll 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 do some rant in a meeting today and then I'll look at the people in the room. They're, they're kind of you know, sitting back and wondering, you know, is he stable? And then I point out to them they're very lucky because now that I'm old, I've calmed down a lot. And I used to be a real son of a bitch in my younger days. And then they laugh, and, and then we move on. <clears throat> uh, but I care so much about my company. I changed the, the very short form of the long story I told is I changed my job every time I need to change my job. And then at the end, I gave away all the cool jobs, all the product line management jobs, all the manufacturing jobs, the sales in Europe job. I gave those to other people. And then I ran the stuff that was critical, quality and excellent financial control, and maybe the latest product cross-functionally, not just the technology, because that's what the company needed. Uh, So... I, I was, uh, at Cyprus, I was regarded as a real hard ass. And I would actually get people who appreciated the honesty, boss, we got to talk to you. And they'd they, go in a room. And they. one of the things they, one I remember, they, they called me in for a meeting one day. I'd had a particularly bad month where I heard, I, I was hearing babble, it was infuriating, or I was torqued up or both. Boss, we got to have bad breath talk. Fine, so we come in and... and one of the things is, you know, you you bring the same kind of people, and they're very different—men and women, uh, 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 PhDs and clerks—but they're all kind, you know, kind of like you, kind of open and blunt. And we need a nuanced culture. I didn't think so. So, uh, and then also, you know, you're too mean. Uh, then I had the talk about. They were talking about some somebody. Uh, some event where something's really bad and I, I blew up at it. And then they argued with me on that. And I said, look, here's what the guy did. It really screwed the company. And he did it for his own purposes to make his own job easier. It's bullshit. And, and then I got insight from them and they said, it's not about him. It's about the other people in the room. It's about collateral damage. It's about watching the poor bastard get fried. So then I, then I realized that and I, I kind of toned it down a little bit. I was in an airplane coming back from Japan. I always keep that my stuff in my briefcase, emergency reading. And I actually got down to the last piece of paper in my briefcase. So it's a long trip. I got on the thing wired so I didn't sleep for the whole trip. And the, the paper was called, uh, organization, organizational vision and visionary organizations. And it was written by two Stanford profs, uh, Collins, Jim Collins, and Jerry Porris. This is back 1995, 1997, <laughs> 97, I think. Okay. Brought tears to my eyes because they talked about culture and how important culture was to company. It was a study. And I like it better than their book. And I still give that paper out all the time. It's on my website. Uh, but they talk about the importance of culture to a company. <laughs> and then the thing that brought tears to my eyes, they talked about how different companies are different and have different cultures at work and many cultures at work. What doesn't work is not to have a culture or to have an inconsistent culture and not have people know where they are. I mean, the Marine Corps has got a culture. A lot of people like it, a lot of people don't, but it doesn't matter. The Marine Corps is the Marine Corps and they're successful. So that's that's what I said, you know, you can be a hard ass and a decent person at the same time, that, that was the thing. 20 years, Uh, you know, I I kept the lid on it to be polite. And of course, in today's world, that's even even more important. I hired them when I came back, they hadn't written the book yet, Uh, uh, built to last is their book. And it was the, you know, all the research come together. And I hired them as consultants to Cyprus. What people call a mission statement really has four parts that are articulated in that paper. One is the core values. What do you believe in? In your company as common values. Second one, what is your mission? And then they had three different kinds of mission statements. My mission statement might become a billion dollar company with 20% profit. Uninspiring, but very quantitative and very measurable. Then there's a, a vision statement, and the vision statement answers the question, what will your company look like when it's achieved this mission? Like if you get all this stuff done, what does the future look like? So there's your statement of vision. The other one is the statement of purpose. The statement of purpose is a boil up of the core values and the statement of purpose. So you have core values, statement of purpose, mission, vision. Core values, statement of purposes answers the question, why do you work here? You know, if TJ's hard ass, why don't you go work somewhere else without a hard ass? And that's the statement of purpose. And, you know, one of our statements was we enjoy competing against the best in the world. We like it. I didn't get put on the earth to get a competition trophy in second grade when I came in in last place and had my mom tell me she really loved me anyway. That's not what I'm here for. And if you're here for that, you know, you need to go somewhere else because we're going to we're going to take some ground and, and it's not going to be easy. So, OK, in the in the core values, uh, one of the things they stressed privately was. Um, the core values are not orders from the top. You know, it's not Moses coming down from the mountain, you know, with tablets saying, you know, thou shalt. It is It is what they really believe because you already have a strong culture. Their first paper made that very clear. They had very different cultures in the companies they studied in that, that little papers in the California Review or the California Management Journal. Um, so you have to write down what your company is. So I went to every site, me. And in those days, we didn't, It didn't have PowerPoint yet and it wouldn't work anyway. I'd turn on the foil machine. I'd throw a foil on the machine. I'd take out a marker and I'd bring all the people in the site, Fab 2 in, in Round Rock, Texas, our design center in Colorado, uh, wherever I was. Um, I, I lay it down. I'd get the pen. I'd say, I start the conversation to get them, uh, oiled up and running. I'd say, What's different about Cypress from other companies you've been at? Nobody wants to talk. They're all sitting there hunched over. I don't want to get embarrassed by saying something stupid. So then I'd pick the shyest person in the front row and I'd say, what do you, what do you think about that question? And they say, well, and it usually gets something that's very true, but maybe not so profound. My boss cares a lot about what I do. Great. <laughs> so I'd write that down. And then, and then. Somebody say it differently, we're, we're, we're tightly managed. I write that down. And whenever I wrote down an equivalent thing, I'd put a check mark. So when I got done, I'd have 25 things written on the foil and 10 of them would have three or four or five check marks, meaning equivalent being said down below. Then I did that at all the sites. Then I came back and I wrote the core values. And I wrote down, this is what we stand for. And I explained it's what we really stand for, not, not what we should stand for. We go through that and I wrote it down. And then I I went through it with the vice president. It's just the the big uh, pads you write on uh, in the boardroom. And we had them scattered around. Then we collected them in the the different groupings. Then we wrote them down. And I look at the core values today and they're absolutely spot on. We're honest. We're smart. We're tough and tell the truth. We admit to problems quickly and solve them. We deplore politicians that blunt smack we deplore politicians so if you give more if you're looking to screw your fellow competitor for the next job up we don't like you if you don't tell the truth because you always want to look good we don't like you uh etc and boy that that one just just carried the day and once we had that then all of a sudden within that framework it all worked there's one more thing we did we got rid of babble in communication. There was another Stanford professor, uh, business school, a guy named Dennis Mathis, and he had, he wrote a book, something along the lines of survival skills for engineers. And, uh, one of my teams took it. This is a team I've been beating up in. on my Thursday meeting, my, my sanity meeting. I met with the PhDs who did transistor physics and built new processes. That was my geek day. <laughs> And that was supposed to be a good meeting. Actually, it was on Fridays, and and I would do it at the end of the day. I schedule it for like four o'clock in the afternoon, and I'd walk out sometimes at seven o'clock with a hoarse voice from screaming. So I was so pissed off. And, and these are my guys, right? And they they do what I do. They have my background. We talk tech to each other. It's shorthand. And that happened a bunch of times. And then one day, and then I moved the meeting back to two o'clock. And then one day we went into the room and we had a meeting. It was wonderful. And it ended at like 3.30. Everybody was happy. We all knew what we were going to do. We had problems all over. That's not what happened, but we all knew what we were going to do. And I talked to their boss, a guy named Tony Alvarez, that I got from Motorola. And I said, boy, your guys were just really good today. And he said, they've been trained. So he ran them through Dennis Mathis's. 10 survivals course for engineers. Now, one of the survival courses is understand finances because that's what your boss cares about and you, you you need to understand it. So when he says something about gross margin, you don't kind of blow him off. Those we didn't need so much. It turned out that of his 10 modules, the one we loved the most was called PQA, precision question and answering. Where, where, and I will actually, and that's a big problem today. I, I'm actually going to write about that one, but I treated it a different way. Your boss, the person running the meeting, is a customer. And he's asking a question to try to make the company better. So you answer his question, you give them the data he want because you're trying to help. And you find out that the babble you've got, for example, I ask, um, why is the yield down to 40% on such and such a product? Well, you know, we worked on that for a long time and, you know, we've got this particle problem. These particles are different. They, they're they charged particles and they actually, you know, attract themselves onto the way. And then about five minutes later, you stopped listening. You're going like this and, and you realize you haven't gotten an answer yet. You've got a guy showing you, I'm real smart and this would have happened to you, which is not what you want. You want to know why the yield's down. So Math is taught that skill for PQ and A, and that was deployed in the company. And we ended up having that be one retrofit to every employee in the company and two, a mandatory course. We had a six month period of various courses. Who are we? What do we make? How does it work? And then, and then this one, uh, which was, uh, PQ and A, and we bring in the professor and he, and he do it. Uh, I've, uh, actually the company's still around and I actually bring them in because Babel is, is one of the, um, big enemies of running a company.
0: I find it really interesting that you're you're so open to hiring consultants because oftentimes see founder CEOs often will slam consultants and you've mentioned several times there a you're you can you'll bring in the expert when you feel there's an expert needed and b you really instill learning constant learning in your team as well as being a constant learner yourself. You,
1: you've, um I love consultants, Um they're all experts in something, I learned quality, which saved my life, <clears throat> we were on our way out of business when Cisco was yielding 30% yield loss, meaning having to rework 30% of their boards, and then they bought Hitachi SRAMs and the yield was 3% rework we were on our way out of business. And I brought in guys that taught me about what quality was, what the meaning of it was, the philosophy of it was, <clears throat> more so than understanding CPK and, and the math of quality, which which matters, but it's not the essence of what is quality. So no, I, I, I um, it's more than that. And I actually judge people in this today. The, the problem you get is you bring in a consultant and he threatens the CEO because for, maybe he espouses some view that's contrary to what the CEO believes or simply knows a lot more about a topic that's important than the CEO. That's so the CEO gets threatened. Um, it's a, it, it, I'm the opposite way. I actually bring in and I actually test people based on what I would call flawed experts. I use them all the time. <clears throat> Where the guys marvel at something but he's kind of like a disaster for other things and i i actually see if people are willing enough to learn to put up with the bullshit sort it out because in there is something that is really important that you need to learn and i've learned a lot myself from from, from people like that uh where where um i put aside and and maybe they violate some of my core values maybe they aren't that honest but I bring them in, I listen to what they've got to say, and I take what I can from it.
0: But well, TJ, your, your piece of advice for founders, so you, you've you been there from the start. You had this idea, you had this vision, you got together with a crew, you created unbelievable value, and you've now gone and now you're, you're p- providing wisdom on how to cre- recreate that value. But I'd love you to give a message to our audience, to the founders, to the startup founders, to the CEOs out there. As the lawyers would say, that's de novo because I, I, that's like an elevator speech about an entire
1: class of lives. Um, okay. Uh, one of the analogies, I'm a football fan, uh, big football fan. And I, I, I actually got to Dartmouth through football. I was on a state championship team in Oshkosh, Wisconsin two years in a row. And, uh, they came to Oshkosh high school and recruited me. That's and I didn't even know what Dartmouth was. I actually asked the guy, Earl Hamilton's line coach that, that showed up in my study hall. I asked, asked, asked him what, what Dartmouth was, uh, when I, when I first interviewed him. But if you look at football, I think it's an excellent microcosm of, of what business has to do. It's a constrained free market. Um, and I think one of the seers of that is Bill Belichick, of uh, the Patriots. And his his phrase that I like, when he's got some player that is explaining why the touchdown had to happen, why it was impossible to prevent it, or why the play didn't work, even though it might've worked. And you've got these long explanations. He interrupts them and just says, do your job, do your job. Your job is to block. That guy is not supposed to get to that guy who's running the ball. It's real simple, do your job. And i can say that to ceos do your job and that that would that would morph based on what i said earlier to do whatever is required to move your company forward and be agile in changing um away from what you've done before that may not matter anymore for example at one time building a fab to me was king and it doesn't matter anymore to me and i don't work on it anymore Although I do think about the process by which I built fabs and I, I build other like battery fabs right now we're working on, uh, for a So do your job and make, and don't allow yourself to get, um, everybody wants to routinize things. Think about a restaurant. You go into a new restaurant, there's some new chef and he's got some new technique of cooking. Um, or it's the latest, uh, let's say French restaurant. And you go in and it kind of blows you away. And you go back to it two years later and it doesn't blow you away anymore because there's this creative period when they're creating the menu and they're working on recipes and they're tasting their dishes and they're talking about do you like it or don't like it and they're trying to get feedback from people uh, out, out in the restaurant. And there's a very creative period. Then all of a sudden they've got the menu and then it's just cranking the thing. It's, it becomes a factory and you lo- they, they lose their their creativity. So that happens to CEOs. You, IBM, the story I told earlier, where they, they have a business process at DEC, same thing, digital equipment corporation. They have a business process that, that is in place at the time they make success. They conclude their success is due to the business process, partly true, partly not true. And then they keep turning the crank over and over and over again. So do your job and think frequently about what you should be doing. And and then the, the way it works is pretty simple. I like what I do. I work every day from the time I get up till the time I go to bed, watch two maybe, a movie at night before I go to bed. And then I work Saturday morning before I go to a movie. And I, and Sunday, uh, I work Sunday morning and then I do stuff on Sunday afternoon. So I work five plus two half days a week and a half all of my career and I still do today. So that's that's what I want. And, and and by the way, if I think I'm, I'm getting tired of the work, I do one of two things. I cut back for a while, take a weekend completely off, go on a vacation for two weeks. Or I ask, how come you hate your job right now? And you don't do it by design on Saturday. And I get rid of that. And sometimes I'm dealing with companies that I just, this is one when we part ways and I'm the one to part ways. I just go, I don't need this crap anymore. And I leave. So always think about what your job is. Always refresh it. And always, always ask if you're um, adding value, and you can and it changes how you add value over your life. Right now, I'm a teacher and a, I'm a consultant. Those are the two things I do today, to make money. And they're make as much money as when you're the man in the corner office. And to me, I, I don't say make money in the sense of avarice, I say make money in the sense of creating value that gets rewarded by transfer to you and usually gets rewarded by buying stock that, that you know, isn't worth anything and turning it into a lot of value. That's really the way you make money, taking something that isn't worth anything and making it valuable.
0: Firstly, I want to say thanks to Charles O'Reilly the third for joining us, author of Lead and Disrupt. I discovered your work through there, TJ, as well, discovered your book, etc. So, Charles, thanks very much for joining us today.
1: It's always a pleasure to to uh, to listen to TJ. He's so insightful about these things. So, thank you, TJ,
0: entrepreneur, value creator, and philanthropist, TJ Rogers. Thank you for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: The Innovation Show is brought to you by Gate One and Gate One Incubator, where Gate One Consulting supports their own team to become founder investors in a growing portfolio of startups, you can find out more about gate one and how they can help your business in the, your transformation efforts at gate one